Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Association for Vascular Access's I Save That Podcast, I Save That Vodcast. I'm Judy Thompson, the Director of Clinical Education for the Association for Vascular Access, and I welcome you to Season 4, Episode 9 of our series. Before I have the honor of introducing our guests and telling you a little bit about what we're going to talk about in our show today, I do want to thank our sponsor for the episode today, which is Medtronic. Medtronic welcomes Ellipsis Vascular Access System to its AV portfolio. Learn more about their new percutaneous solution for AV fistula creation. Visit medtronic.com backslash ellipsis. So welcome, welcome, welcome. This is our third episode that we have concentrated on chronic kidney disease, end-stage renal disease, dialysis access, and vessel preservation specifically. And we are really honored to have these guests with us today. Of course, I have my partner in crime, Blake Hotchkiss. Say hey hi, guys. Blake. How's it going? <laughs> Happy to have you here. Our stars of the show today, we have back with us again, Dr. Mike Cyril, and two special guests today, um, Jessica Lancaster, who is a nurse on the East Coast, and also Dr. Jennifer Stoddard. So I'm going to start with you, Dr. Stoddard. Would you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and your passion in this field? Well, thank you for having me today. I'm super excited. I've never been on a podcast before. Um, so this is all very new. Um, but I am a nephrologist in private practice in North Carolina. I've been in private practice since 2005. Um, fellowship trained board certified nephrologist with a special uh, training in nephropathology, which I did an additional fellowship in. Um, and we have a, a huge ESRD population here. As you know, this is one of the hot spots in the United States for ESRD incidents. And um, so we have uh, 10 dialysis units that we cover and um, a hospital with an acute unit. And um, I'm all about dialysis access. I'm passionate about prevention of CKD, prevention of progression of CKD. And then once ESRD is inevitable, getting people transplants, getting them off dialysis. But if they have to be on dialysis, doing it as safely as possible to allow people to live as long as possible and with as few complications as possible. That is a great passion. So thank you, thanks for being here. And now new to our show too is, as Mike refers to you, Nurse Jessica. <laughs> and he calls, he has many other really nice things to say about you, but I'm very excited to talk to you today. Can you introduce yourself and tell our, our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm super excited. Bucket list checked. Um, <laughs> I am a dialysis nurse of 14 years. Um, I work full time for Fresenius doing vascular access management for the home hemo uh, or actually all of home therapy patient populations for the state of South Carolina. And then I do some some side gigs with uh, the ellipsis percutaneous fistula and a graft and a couple of other 
coming to the market products and my love is vascular access. I feel like that's the end and the, the beginning and the end for patients to have good quality dialysis. It can be what sets their frustration level at a minimum or maximum. And so I, I thrive to try to make patients um, embrace it and love it and know that it's not the end of the world and that it's, um, it's their lifeline and to protect it at all costs. So that's, that's what I do. Good. Well, thank you. Thank you. And Mike is always my, as I've referred to you, my brother from a different mother. We, we have some great talks on this. So thank you for being back. So, um, so I can't wait to talk to you guys about the, the growing need and Dr. started, you talked about you guys being such a hotspot of ESRD and why is that? Do you think? Well, that's a great question, Judy. Um, this is an area of a lot of research. Uh, you know, if you look at the United States, uh, the USRDS uh, statistics, you can see the incidence and prevalence of ESRD. And it's clear that there are areas of the United States that have a fairly low incidence. I did um, four years of training at Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine, and that's in one of the lower incidence areas. Um, and then I came down to North Carolina, and especially this area, which is higher incidence, but uh, the Southeast, the Deep South, um, and then of course, areas uh, in the uh, Southwest, very high incidence. Um, we know that uh, chronic kidney disease disproportionately hits people of color uh, and specifically uh, Native Americans are at particular risk. Um, so in areas with uh, penetrance of those populations, you're going to see a higher incidence and prevalence. And, you know, one thing that we do know about chronic kidney disease is it's extremely genetic. You know, and I tell my uh, patients with diabetes all the time, and this is interesting because it came up when you were interviewing Ms. Lichman yes, a couple of podcasts ago, that patients are often blamed for their disease. And it makes me really angry when I hear that. And I spend usually my first visit with a patient explaining that this is not their fault. This isn't anything they did. Having type 2 diabetes is very genetically, you know, encoded. And then whether or not you're going to get nephropathy is also highly genetically encoded. So there are a lot of people with very poorly controlled glucose, very high A1Cs for many, many years, have perfectly good kidney function, do not get nephropathy. And there are other people who are super tight about it. They do a great job. But they're going to get nephropathy no matter what, because their mother had nephropathy, their grandparents had nephropathy, their brother and sister have nephropathy. And around here, we have whole kindreds. I have many dialysis units with siblings, parents, kids, aunts, uncles, all dialyzing in the same dialysis unit. And oh, it's, wow. it's when you see that, you realize that this is really something that is predetermined for these people, unfortunately. Every time I get a group of you the folks that I haven't met before that are experts in this field, I learn more about it. 
and it, it just empowers me to go do more and more. So I'm excited. Blake, you should feel good. You're in an area where there is a low incident rate. I know. I was just saying, like, Maine Med. I'm like, I, I live in Maine. <laughs> oh, are you up in Maine? Oh, yeah. I oh, practice at uh, so Central Maine Medical Center in Lewis and Auburn. But I've been up north and in my clinical practice as a nurse. Well, we'll have to talk because I'm sure we know a lot of the same people. I know a lot of nephrologists in Maine. <laughs> the more you do this, the more you realize how small the world is it's it's very unique exactly. yeah exactly jessica you and i talked a little bit before we started the podcast about vascular preservation and i think you and i and probably the, the entire panel here shares that that need that passion to preserve the vasculature on all our patients but in particular these these at-risk patients what's going on in your neck of the woods how are you guys solving that problem or working on it? So I, th I think that the, the, the building blocks for this has to come education first. We have to educate the patients on why it's important for them to be their, their, their biggest advocate. And it's okay for them to speak up if they see a clinician doing something that goes against what they know is, is healthy for their access. And then on the flip side, we have to educate um, the nurses and the techs on our accountability for what we're doing to these vessels. Um, you know, if you're just going in and, and putting IVs in and, and blood pressure cuffs and doing, you know, all of this stuff throughout your years um, that could potentially impact these vessels later on, you know, it just doesn't make sense for us not to understand the cause and effect of why we do things and what it can mean down the road for somebody. We know that there's not an infinite number of possibilities for, for vascular access but we don't understand what that means for the patient and how we can impact that um, as a dialysis nurse or tech. And I think that's the part that's important that we need to get across is what does it mean if I mess this access up for this patient? Yeah, I get to go home today, but what does it mean for them six, seven, eight, nine months from now when they have to get a new access and they may not have an option? So, you know, just suggesting to that, um, you know, I've talked about this extensively over the last year or so, but uh, one of the things that I always, you know, preach for is, and, and tying it back to Ava and what we do as a community here, vascular access, uh, share, if you wouldn't mind, I mean, would you mind sharing with, you know, with the audience from your perspective, what it's like treating a patient with ESRD on the chair with a poorly maturing AV access because of multiple, you know, multiple lines or, you know, sclerotic vessels because of inappropriate, uh, you know, vessel vascular access and what that translates to the patient downstream and, you know, not necessarily your perspective as a nurse, although share that as well, but how that impacts the patient and the, the, the level of frustration that causes for for me in in my niche of the world with especially going from in home therapies which is where the big push is to right now um we're seeing patients that have come from in center with poor vascular access and their frustration level is through the roof because professionals can't even get the 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 needle in the right spot their alarms are going off their treatments get extended they get delayed getting home um, getting their kids off the bus or, or making their next appointment and so we encourage this patient oh well you can have more control if you come to home and in their minds they're thinking well how am i going to do this if the nurse 
that does this for a living can't do this or the tech that does this for a living can't do this. And so they're starting off with negative thoughts in the bank. And so we have to overcome that hurdle and give more and more education and support and make them understand just because someone's medically trained to do this doesn't mean they do this right. And patients have more accountability. They know that they can't, um, for lack of a better term, blame somebody else if something goes wrong. They own it. They know that it's not, okay, well, when you're in center and you've got a bad access and, and today was a bad stick. Well, I'm not here their next treatment, so it'll be somebody else's problem. Well, unfortunately, that's not somebody else's problem. It's still that same patient in the chair, and then they become hesitant to come back. And, and you know, you get multiple bad treatments in a row, and that's where we get the patient labeled as non-adherent or non-compliant, when really it's just their frustration is an all-time maximum, and it's, okay, this has controlled my life. I'm not in control anymore. And it just becomes a downward spiral, and you can watch them decline just from a mental state, not necessarily just dialysis, but how it impacts everything. So Jessica, I, what you brought up is great. And, and I, I hear exactly what you're saying, but to the folks that I work with and Blake and I are both vascular access specialists, we put lines in and we think once, or I think I'm not going to put this on Blake. Um, <laughs> I always felt that once you have a fistula, once you have a graph, it's an easy stick. Is that, that's not true. I take it. No, it's not. It's, so in dialysis, you have to, it's when you look at a, in a job application for dialysis, we're going to go way back day one, you put in your application for a PCT or a CCHT, CCHT, not necessarily PCT. They have no requirements. Of so PCT, patient care technician, somebody walks okay. in off the street, high school graduate, uh, McDonald's employee, uh, retail services, no medical background needed whatsoever. We train you from the bottom to, the, to everything you need to know to be able to do dialysis safely. CCHT is a PCT that's been in the business for a year and a half. They've taken a, a national standardized test and they're competent in all things dialysis to be able to do what dialysis technicians need to do. So with that being said, um, you know, a patient walks in and they don't know that the person putting their needle in just got this job at 20 years old. They've never done anything medically related, no medical training, no vocational school, no nothing. Um, they could have come from the Waffle House, which one of the best PCTs I've ever worked with came from the Waffle House and was trained. <laughs> but that just goes to show we're teaching skills, but we're not teaching the theory necessarily about what we do and what impact it may have um, as far as this patient's uh, life, uh, their family, their social status, all of this stuff that can become encompassed in this one diagnosis of ESRD and how it can impact their their livelihood, their socioeconomics, their bills. I mean, just it just is a cascading effect. And I think we miss that mark in dialysis education. We get so focused on the, the anatomy and physiology and the, the steps one through 10 to complete dialysis that we forget the why it's important. Gotcha, thank you. Because in my, my mind, it's like, official looks pretty easy to get. So. I am, I'm learning from you guys once again, as I, I love so much. Well, and it's a skill and that's what we have to remember. It's a skill set and not everybody can perform the same skills 
no matter how much they practice. And so, you know, there are people that have been in this business for 20 years that I still wouldn't let come at me with a needle. And there are somebody that's brand new that just has that compassion about them to to want to succeed that I'm like, sure, I'll be your guinea pig. Come on. I know you're not going to hurt me intentionally. And so I think that that can be, um, that's something that is inherent to people. It's not something you can always develop. We can try to better your skill set, but some people are just born naturally to have that compassion that can, can really take you to the next level. And just let's pivot from that for one second, because it's not always going to be the nurse or the tech's fault as to why the access isn't properly cannulated. So Dr. Stoddard and I have seen many, 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 many times where, you know, sometimes it's a situation where you get, you get a poorly maturing access for a lot of reasons and chronic, you know, IVs and chronic, uh, you, you know, uh, you know, pick lines or midline catheters are one of the causes of patients have to go back for recurrent surgery or the access is too deep and the surgeon really didn't take the time to superficialize it. And I saw several of those a couple of weekends ago. And, you know, the, you know, this is, and, and unless you're going to spend the time going down with an ultrasound, you know, we assume that it's the, you know, the end user's fault. And sometimes it is, sometimes it's not because of poor training, like as Jessica pointed out, but sometimes it's, it, you know, the patient's doing everything right. The nurse is doing everything right. Um, but all of the factors that kind of led to the patient, you know, led up to the patient's obtaining an IV access, uh, 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 a permanent hemodialysis access kind of lended to the ability for them to not get a maturing access. So that is where as a vascular access community, we really can step in and kind of eliminate one of those mitigating factors. And I know when I first got to uh, the hospital in North Carolina and I met Dr. Stoddard, she was extraordinarily passionate about uh, access preservation and not putting pick lines in CKD. This is, you know, this is before the Kadoki guidelines even really kind of pounded that to, to my knowledge. Uh, Dr. Stoddard, can, can you talk about that? I was that trained to do that at Maine Med. <laughs> So talk about that. Because before that was even popular, right? So, um, you know, we, were, we weren't screening CKD in the ESRD patients routinely 20 years ago uh, for, you know, for pick lines. I mean, you, Judy, you, you were a pick line nurse a long time. When did this really become a consideration? And, uh, and Dr. Stoddard, how did that end up being part of your practice? I think I'll, I'll, I'd love you to talk about it first, Dr. Stoddard, then I'll pop in as a vascular access girl and boy for like. <laughs> well, when I was in fellowship uh, in Portland, Maine in 2002 to 2004, um, we had an active nephrologist uh, interventionalist program there where nephrologists actually did all the fistulograms and all the access management. Um, and we were trained. It was just, you know, we were trained like pick lines and subclavian lines are no, no bueno. And um, that was uh, just part of the uh, basic uh, training to become a nephrologist. Uh, and then when I came out of fellowship and went into private practice, I saw, mm, you know, a little, it's a, I, was, I was fighting an uphill battle, swimming against the stream for a few years with that. Um, but then when Mike came in, uh, then you know, we were able to ally together, him and Angio and me on the clinical side, and we were able to make 
some things happen at our hospital and change uh, the practice. Uh, and, you know, anesthesiology, they would throw a subclavian in, you know, while a patient was having their cabbage. Um, yeah. You know, the surgeons would use subclavian. Pick lines were being put in all over here and there and everywhere. And, yeah, long-term care, like yeah. long facilities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so we uh, had to fight the, the fight on a lot of fronts, but we don't see it happen anymore. It's a tough it's fight. It's rare. It, it is. Mm -hmm. It's a tough fight. Back when I started really concentrating on this, it was, oh, I can't remember how long ago it was, but I just knew that we had a thrombosis rate. And I didn't know much about Kadoki at the time, but I knew our thrombosis rate was kind of staggering in my brain. And it went, well, if they have a thrombosis, that's obviously not good. And then I, you know, following the vasculature, I went, well, this isn't good. And again, that's what lent me to placing all lines, but it was a battle. And honestly, even with my nephrologist, they would tell me, really oh, seriously, but this is a long time ago, granted, but I would talk, one of my nephrologists, I was talking to him and he was our chief of nephro at the time. And I said, we've got to stop placing picks in our patients. And he goes, well, they need their antibiotic. What are we going to do? And he goes, they're, they're, they will die of sepsis potentially if we don't, and they need to go home. We're not going to keep them in the hospital. Give me other options. I want, they've got a neck. <laughs> we can go there, but... Well, the power line really changed things for the better. When, once we had the power line as an option here, that's when we were able to completely shift sort of the standard of care for outpatient, long-term IV. So even more so than the power hone or the Hickman. So the, the hone and the Hickman were larger bore catheters, um, which you know did the same trick. But the, the Dr. Stiles' point, power line is, is a product. Um, it's basically it's a small board. It, 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 it's a proprietary product of, of BD, but there's other companies that make similar products. It's a small bore, four, five, six French tunneled yeah. um, the cuff. So it gets placed at just like a pick line and uh, a perm cath. The nice thing about it, in comparison to the larger bore, uh, you know, the old Hickmans and whatnot, they don't cause the same central venous disease that you saw with right. those larger bore catheters. So, I mean, I've had patients with pick with power lines and for years, you know, for years because of TPN's necessity or, uh, you know, what, whatever. And uh, they, you know, they, they develop no central venous stenosis because it's such a small bore catheter in a larger vasculature right. versus size catheter will throw thrombose somebody's entire arm or stenose their arm, you know, in, in months versus, you know, this is, it, it, and to Dr. Stoddard's point, that, that, that device has made all the difference. It's a small bore tunneled catheter. So. Yeah, I started using a 4.5 antimicrobial antithrombogenic line. Um, ages ago, loved it, great results. And I know um, Blake has just learned now to play central line. So on his per diem days, he's <laughs> he's now putting the right lines in for the- Yeah, yeah we're just getting started with that program. And, and I think it's interesting. We've talked a lot about advancing scope of practice in nursing or for vascular access teams across the country, across the globe. Um, and one of those things that the debate becomes is, well, what about the residents who need to learn how to place these lines or why isn't the, you know, we're not trying to steal the lines. What we're trying to do is have a tool in our toolkit to place the best line for the patient. 
Absolutely. You know, and, that, and that's really, when you walk in with, with that discussion point, the, the, the sales pitch for that is, is so much easier because it's all about the patient. We've talked about, and it's interesting listening to you guys talk about vascular access from the, the fistula side too. It's like there are a lot of factors to consider and how device selection happens in the life of the patient and how that impacts uh, fistula maturation, those sorts of things are, are, you know, that's what we're taught, but it's really cool to hear it from you guys who are actually placing the lines of the, the AV fistula grafting uh, access and how those kind of decisions in the life of the patient actually impact, like what the outcome might be even to the technician side. Like, what a great segue, because we're going to have to stop for a second from a word from our sponsor talking about fistulas. Do you treat end-stage renal disease patients requiring hemodialysis? Transform your AV fistula creation with Ellipsis Vascular Access System from Medtronic. The Ellipsis System's unique single catheter, non-surgical approach requires no implant or suture and simplifies a traditionally invasive surgical procedure. Guided by ultrasound and with just a single needle stick, it uses a patented tissue fusion technology to create the fistula endovascularly. Most patients leave with just a small adhesive bandage. Learn more at medtronic.com backslash ellipsis. Risks may include total or partial occlusion or stenosis of the anastomosis. Failure to achieve fistula maturation, steel syndrome, hematoma infection, and the need for vessel superficialization or other maturation assistance procedures. Federal law restricts this device to sale by or on the order of a physician. Find important safety information at Medtronic.com backslash ellipsis. Okay, now let's get back to our panel of experts. So guys, we, we've talked... A lot of the folks that listen to our show, um, they're on a, the other side of the aisle, if you will, on the vascular access, on placing lines. I put in picks, I put in midlines, I put in PIVs. And we do a lot of damage to your patients. Unwillingly, nobody goes in there to work to make sure that they can't get a fistula next week. But we do it because, as Mike said, you know, if, if all we have are hammers, everything's a nail or something of that sort. But how how do we start making some incremental changes because we have specialists like jessica obviously you're insanely passionate about what you do dr stoddard mike and i i don't know i am i am so kind of moving towards that direction of this patient population and knowing that my group of folks we do a lot of damage out there how can we improve I mean, patient education, from my perspective, and I would, love, I would love Dr. Stoddard and Jessica's perspective, but patient education, Jessica kind of leaned on it earlier. We talked about the work that was being done in Europe uh, for the Save the Vein initiative, and I, you know, I, I feel like I, I beat this dead horse over and over again, but um, it, you know, it, it's educating the patient and understanding that most patients don't understand the necessity of vascular access preservation, and those that do understand it or those that know about it don't practice it is a big problem. So I, I think starting with the patient, you know, from, from my perspective and making sure they understand, because I, I have these conversations every time I see a patient for a fistulogram or, you know, they're getting stuck in the same area over and over again. 
and, and we're very quick to dismiss them and saying, oh, they're, you know, they, they don't understand. But most of them do. And most of them, if, if you sit down with them and spend 5, 10, 15 minutes explaining to them why it's bad to do something to their body, they understand it. And at least from my experience, Dr. Stoddard, what are your thoughts on that? I think this issue is really complex. Um, and it goes back to the psychology of, I have something that will work really well right now for the problem at hand, which is a very serious problem, whatever that might be, bacterial endocarditis or osteomyelitis or you know, whatever. And I also can consider that way, 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 way down the road, I may have a disease I can't really conceptualize because it's abstract. And maybe if I do something different right now, which might not be as ideal, I'll have a payoff in this imaginary future. And that psychology is why most of us don't exercise every day, why most of us don't floss every day. I mean, it's a hard sell. And whatever's right in front of you always is the most pressing problem. But I do think that by making rules in systems like hospitals, that if a creatinine is over, X, something simple, no pick lines, and just really eliminate the pick line from the CKD population altogether. Will that fix the problem entirely? No, but I think it would make a big dent in the problem if we just took it off the table. I remember when, when we discovered gadolinium was harmful to CKD patients. And we were using so many MRIs in these patients because, of course, iodinated contrast was not very <laughs> helpful for these patients. So whenever we needed to do imaging, we would always choose the MRI. The insurance companies didn't like it, but hey, that was better for the patient. Then we find out, oh my gosh, all this gadolinium is really harming our patients irreparably and severely. And we had to, on a dime, decide we're not giving our patients GAD anymore. And we were like, what are we going to do? You know? Well, now everybody gets a contrasted CT instead because it's less harm. But I, I say that only because if we just take the pick line off the table, people can deal with it. And we'll have better outcomes you know, in the next five, 10, 20 years for these patients. They won't see the improvement in outcomes immediately, but you'll have the kinds of numbers we have with our fistula rate and our primcath rate, which has been one to 3% primcath rate in our 550 dialysis wow. patients for many, many years. And that the payoff we're having now is likely because of those changes we made with pick line usage 10 to 15 years ago. And where do you cut off the use of a pick? At what stage? <laughs> well, if, you had, <laughs> if you had 10 nephrologists, you'd get 10 different answers. I mean, so the smartest the thing, 
Go ahead. I'm to sorry. Say is, you know, if somebody has proteinuria or they have a GFR under 60, that's probably the best cutoff. If you're going to make a cutoff, why not make it there? Right. Um, but you're, as you make it more draconian like that, you're the you're logarithmically increasing the number of patients that this will affect, right? I mean, the number of patients with a GFR between 45 and 60 is probably bigger than 45 and less, you know, sure. in the United States. But so we all know draw, it was yeah. If it was our mom, if it was our 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 spouse, whomever, and they had a G GFR of 55 and they were 55 years old, we'd say no way. So at least I would, I think. <laughs> so I, I think that seems to me, and like, to your point though, there's so many other variables. Are they 90 years mm -hmm. old? Do they have lung, do they have a cancer? Do they have? Right, so, right, exactly. What's the access for? Do they need a port because they're getting cytotoxic chemo for metastatic cancer and they're gonna have yeah. you know, blood draws and their life expectancy is less than five years? That, you know, Different maybe they're story. GFR 30, say, okay, all right, fine. But right. we really haven't talked about the fact that they're probably getting an ICD on the other side. Sure. True. Which yeah, nowadays, true. it's like everybody's getting a pacemaker or an ICD. And those, I think, cause a serious amount of damage in our subclavians. Dr. Stott, you bring up a really good point. So, so you start getting in and you start dialing in like the more complicated algorithms if the patient has less than five years to live, if they're over a certain age, what we, so, so the recommendation I always made, because that is a very, because it, it, we, you know, it's not, it's not black and white when it comes to vascular access. So I always say 100% of the time, if you have a patient that has a, has renal insufficiency, even if the nephrologist is not on formal consult and you're in a hospital about to get this, get a nephrologist on consult, let them see the patient, let them understand, get, they are the specialists in the disease process. Incur and, and, I, and I mean this, and I've been screaming this from the very beginning because it's really easy for someone that's not gonna deal with the downstream sequelae to mm -hmm, say mm -hmm. it's not a big deal. But if you mm -hmm. involve the folks that are ultimately going to take responsibility for the care of this patient, mm -hmm. you will save the patient. You'll save possibly a consult later on and an angry consult later on. <laughs> but at the mm -hmm. end of the day, you know, engaging early on is just good medicine. And, you know, we don't, you know, if someone has an acute MI or someone has uh, myocardial ischemia, if they, if they have angina, you know, it's, you get your consult in a cardiologist. If you have renal disease, and you want to make a decision that's going to potentially affect the long-term access on this patient, consult a nephrologist. It's, you know, it, it may be Friday afternoon. They may get, you know, they, they may be tired, but trust me, they, they, no one will ever bite your head off for consulting them to see what the appropriate vascular access is. Am, am I off on this, Dr. Stoddard? No, and be honest. Have you met my partners? <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> Maybe a curbside will do. Curbside is fun. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> so Jessica, I think we've heard from uh, part of this panel, but I want to hear from you. What what are some incremental improvements we can make? So I'm, you know, listening to all of this, it it makes me excited. But I think at the fundamental core of it, we're so we get patients to give informed consent, but it's uneducated. 
we don't give them all of the pieces. And I think until we can turn that corner to give them an educated, informed consent to make decisions based on what we've taught them and with reputable sources and in a language they can understand at a level they can understand, don't talk above or below them. Then I think that, you know, once we can get the point to them that they understand, embrace, and they, they own this diagnosis, then they take it back to their family, to the church, to their community. And they say, Oh, I got hit this blow that I thought was going to change and alter my life. However, because I've been educated and taught how to make improvements in my day-to-day living, what I eat, how much I drink, the salt or not using salt, then their kids, their grandkids, cousins, the other members of their church and their community, they start to listen because it's when we meet people that are like us, and they've been impacted by something that could potentially impact me the same way, I buy into it. And I say, oh, well, if it could happen to Sally Sue over there, it can happen to me. And I start and I I go, wait, maybe I need to pay attention to what she's talking about. Maybe I need to go to the doctor and see what my baseline of everything is. And and I think that it's kind of a grassroots movement. I don't think that you're going to get a doctor making a blanket statement while I love my doctors. I, I I tend to listen more and take it in when it's somebody that's like me and I can relate to them. And I think that's where it comes from. If we can really get that education at the at the level of the patient and to the point where it's repetitive education, they're hearing the same consistent message, not inconsistent consistent messages, they tend to take it back to their families. Oh, let's change the way we do Thanksgiving or Christmas and how we cook the food because it's going to impact me and it could potentially save you. I love that. That's a great, great point. And I, every time I talk to you and now I, again, I, I gained a passion for this population a long time ago when I figured out I was doing a lot of damage to this population and I finally stopped it, but I want to do more and I want to come up with some sort of consensus paper or work with people like you that really know it inside and out to do something that really makes a difference. And I want you guys on our team. <laughs> I want to volunteer y'all. Absolutely. <laughs> all in. You're all in. Perfect. I got, uh, I'm waiting for Dr. Stoddard's nod. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in. I'm in. I'm 100%. And I was just, I was distracted because I was thinking about what Jessica said, and you know, I don't have any scientific data to back this up, but we all in the dialysis community know that the patients talk to each other. All they the talk time. to each other a lot in the waiting room. And uh, they, they are observing and watching the other patients around them that they can see from their chairs. And what I do in patient A, if patient B is proximal to patient A, then patient B is curious about that. They're talking in the waiting room about it. And um, if they hear from another patient any medical advice, be it dietary, medication, side effects, what have you, that is to them 100% trustworthy. It's good as gold. And (laughs) it's 
it's just one of those things as the rounding nephrologist that we're keen to because it feels like we say the same thing over and over and over and over. But the soon as they hear it from, you know, Derek on the next row over. It's like therapeutic milieu. You know, for a year oh or something for someone. But they hear it from another patient. Good. We're good. So if there would be a way to harness that peer-to-peer education, that would be super powerful. How do we do it? I mean, are, are there... Like I know there's um, vascular access groups that for patients that have vascular devices and long-term devices. Are there like Facebook social media groups for yes. people with ESRD? Yes. We need to, then we infil, infiltrate. We're like uh, the soldiers <laughs> of the- I, I've done it. I've done it. Influence. <laughs> you have. Yeah, they definitely are. And I don't I do mean, a lot on the group, but I, I'm always there to hear what I, I watch, what patient trends are talking about, what is important to the patient. It doesn't necessarily know. They don't necessarily want my opinion. They're not asking for it. They know that I'm in that group, but I'm listening to see what's important to them because what's important to me may not be what's important to them, but I may be able to reach them through what's important to them and bring it back to what's important to me. Mm-hmm. Common ground. Yeah. yeah, I know Blake right. and I are both in a vascular access group that for people that have accesses and some of the questions they have, it breaks my heart because they're not educated when they get these devices and they go home and they see, you know, they've got red pussy icky and they don't know that they should get to the hospital right now. So I think, I don't know if it's as severe with your groups, but it's kind of scary stuff. And I think, and unlike the dialysis community where you get seen three times a week by a dialysis nurse, you know, a lot of times you get these devices put in your arm and you're left, you know, to your own devices, no pun intended for, uh, for for the last, for the next, you know, three, two, four, six weeks. So you're, you're absolutely right. So, Mm -hmm. and you know, oh, it hurts, it hurts and it throbs and it's like, oh, bingo, you have a DVT. So they don't have any ideas and oh my hand all, is all swollen i wonder if that's any a uh, problem yep mm-hmm. <laughs> so i don't know i think i think there's more we can do and i just feel so fortunate that through mike and his contacts i've gotten to meet you dr stoddard and jessica and terry litchfield and some of the other wonderfulness that mike's brought to our group that i feel that um our our world is expanding a little bit to where hopefully that we educate vascular access people a little bit better about end-stage renal disease and the end-stage renal disease folks can talk to us more about what we need to do to help you so and then hopefully we get to the patient bottom line so i go ahead mike no absolutely i agree (laughs) so I appreciate you guys so much coming on our show today. I hope you'll consider coming back because this is just too much fun not to have you back. I had a great time. It was super great to meet you guys and love talking about this stuff anytime. Thank you. You better get tired of me. What you say, I have it on tape. (laughs) (laughs) Jesse Lancaster and Dr. Stoddard, they're great. I mean, I'm sure you're getting tired of me at this point. Never no heard way. of you, Mike. 
Never tired no, of you. Been fun. It's always a great time. It's always a great time hanging out with you guys. Blake and Judy, you guys are awesome. And thank you for, uh, like I said, the, the, the two people I brought on with me today are the best in the field, absolutely the best in their fields. And it's uh, it's a pleasure to have worked with them and continue to work with them. So He true. even said that when you worked in the room, Justin. I'll pay you later, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> Well, guys, I, again, I can't thank you enough. I appreciate everything you're doing for this population and, and the effort you're making to, to educate us so we can do better as well. So be well, safe thank, out there. Thank you for, for addressing this really important topic. You can see the entire AVA calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. Don't miss Facebook Fridays where we are live at noon Eastern time each week. Toss us a question or give us a like. We're on all the social media platforms. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or Google Play Music. Okay, folks, here comes the legal stuff. The topics discussed on the I Save That series are for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of experienced clinicians before making any decision that affects your health or the health of your patients. Listeners are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and educate the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with more experienced clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this program, you agree that the hosts, Presenters, guests, sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information presented. The I Save That series may contain segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the fair use doctrine, as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have specific concerns about this program or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at avaed at avainfo.org. No part of this program shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without prior written consent from the Association for Vascular Access. <laughs> <laughs>